0: We do come then to the preaching of God's Word, and found in Luke 18, verses 35 through 43. So Luke here records what was recorded in Matthew, but focuses upon one of the blind men. And so notice at verse 34, Luke 18, verse 35 rather, and following. And it came to pass that as he was come nigh unto Jericho, a certain blind man sat by the wayside begging. And hearing the multitude pass by, he asked what it meant. And they told him that Jesus of Nazareth passeth by. And he cried, saying, Jesus, thou son of David, have mercy on me. And when they which went before rebuked him that he should hold his peace, but he cried so much the more, Thou son of David, have mercy on me. And Jesus stood and commanded him to be brought unto him, and when he was come near, he asked him, saying, What wilt thou that I shall do unto thee? And he said, Lord, that I may receive my sight. And Jesus said unto him, Receive thy sight, thy faith hath saved thee. And immediately he received his sight and followed him, glorifying God. And all the people, when they saw it, gave praise unto God. As for God's word, here we have a blind man who sees. And yet he sees before his physical eyes perceive light. What do we mean? Well, notice in the text He's a blind man, begging, and though blindness is surely an affliction today, yet blindness in ancient days was even more so because of the great lack of support that was allowed in those ancient days. We mean nothing to detract from such afflictions and trials today. How severe they are is certain. But here you'll notice the blind man, which was typical for such was by the wayside begging. It was indicative of his full reliance upon others contributing to his well-being. He couldn't work for himself. He couldn't do for himself. And so he was one who must needs receive the kind compassion of others. But notice his other senses work. He hears the multitude. And so he would have been in a common, prominent place where people would have passed by, perhaps at the gate of Jericho. And as the people are passing by, he hears the footsteps, he hears the sound of a crowd talking and uh, going on. And he says, what's going on? What's taking place? He asks, what is it that takes place? And notice the response, verse 37, they told him that Jesus of Nazareth passeth by. Notice that expression, Jesus of Nazareth. What's told to him is not the Son of God incarnate. What's told to him is not Jesus the Savior, but simply Jesus of Nazareth passeth by. Perhaps the most basic way of referring to our beloved Savior. It doesn't highlight much, if anything, of his person and glorious work it be akin to saying your name of your city. That person passes by. Which one? Well, you know, the one who was born in that city and lived there and so on. But notice as soon as he hears that, he cries out. His voice launches from the depths, not merely of his physical body, but of the agony of his soul. He's crying out now in earnestness. He will not be unheard, Because of the crowd's noise. He will cause his desire to be known. What is it he cries out? Jesus, now notice, not of Nazareth, but son of David. Have mercy on me. This is important because this reference, son of David, is a messianic title. And so David was given a promise that of his seed... There should ever be one seated upon the throne. So a king should always reign over God's people who would come from issue from the line of David. You think of the various ways Christ is spoken of both as the root of David and as the fruit of David. And so, of course, Jesus is the one who is preeminent And precedes David as he is the son of God. And he is, of course, the Messiah and Savior who has provided to David all that David rejoices in as a believer. But he's also, according to the flesh, the seed or the fruit of David. So Jesus, according to the flesh, as the genealogies take pains to display, descends from the line of David. Now, we'll see why this is an exercise of faith, but simply notice right now that the man is seeing this, not with his physical eyes, which remain blinded, but rather with his soul. He perceives what is there. And he's met with this obstacle, but cries out, verse 39, so much the more the same thing, thou son of David, have mercy on me. Uh, Brethren, what would it be like to see someone who was a beggar because of some physical affliction that prevented them truly from working and laboring and so on, to cry out with desperation for that relief and mercy. And now the crowd, having stopped, having heard Christ saying, What wilt thou that I shall do unto thee? And the man says... Lord, that I may receive my sight. What would we be like if we were there in the crowd at that time? This blind man who for howsoever long has been sitting by the wayside begging, not only that day, but days before, perhaps well known to the rest of the citizenship of Jericho and those visitors who would come and go. And now he has the audacity to ask this one for sight. And the silence of the crowd, perhaps, was so thick. And what does Christ say? He says, receive thy sight. Nothing magical, no incantation, no uh, strange thing. Simply his word, as well as, recorded in Matthew, the touching of him. Receive thy sight. Thy faith hath saved thee. And Immediately he receives his sight. So what we see is this man who physically was blind, was spiritually seeing. And as a display of the Lord Jesus and his glory who had come as various signs to display who he was, gave sight to the blind, uh, gave the ability to walk to those that were lame, raised the dead and other such things. So this is another sign pointing to who he is and what he's come to do. So you have these multiple layers of what's taking place. The blind man with spiritual sight, seeing, perceiving, requesting of Christ in mercy, Christ in mercy and compassion, exercising miraculous power, which again confirms that he is indeed the son of David. Remember in context, what's to happen to the son of David? Well, it is verse 32. That he shall be delivered unto the Gentiles and shall be mocked and spitefully entreated and spitted on. And they shall scourge him and put him to death. And the third day he shall rise again. This sign of his healing was only confirming who he is and what he had come to do. Well, we'll look at this site of faith and looking at three things to help us understand something of the exercise of faith and its blessing. Firstly, we'll note that faith sees who Jesus is. It discerns, it understands who Christ is. Secondly, it sees in spite of misery, in spite of trials and affliction. In fact, we can say even now that the afflictions and trials accentuate faith. It makes faith all the more evident because it sees through those things that would overwhelm those without faith. And finally, that it sees true life. It sees not only personal temporal blessing, but it sees something that transcends even temporal blessings in this world. So these three things from this passage, which all commend the grace and mercy of Jesus Christ. So, firstly, notice that faith sees who Jesus is. Now, we've indicated this already. Obviously, there was the understanding of this is Jesus of Nazareth. So, when it's told to this man, he hears it, but he cries out, Jesus, son of David. Now, why is this an exercise of faith? Well, several reasons, but preeminently because, think of how Jesus was at this time. He is still one who has not a place to lay his head. He doesn't have a palace, but even more so, he doesn't have a house. He doesn't have a hut. We think of third world countries and we're astonished at how men, women, and children live. They come into these huts with dirt floors. Some of them have to walk literally miles to get water for the day. They have to go to the market and sell their wares and perhaps trade and barter and all of those things. And they do so with maybe one change of clothes and are entirely dependent on others. But they at least have a roof over their heads that they can call their own. It may look even less than a shed in your backyard, but it is their home. Jesus doesn't have a home. He doesn't have a residence in our day, to put it in our sort of conception. He couldn't say, just mail me a letter to this address because he didn't have that. Instead, he was himself reliant upon the mercies of those around him. And so there were women like Mary the demoniac who with others supported the ministry of their own substance And this would, of course, be transferred in many ways to the apostles, not perfectly and fully, but nonetheless, truly, where they would go from place to place, spreading the gospel and relying upon the merciful reception of others. And so here is, in many ways, what the world would have seen as a vagabond, a man who was transient. He didn't live here, there or anywhere else. And for many, this was a stumbling block because he wasn't in the pomp and circumstance of royalty appearing. He didn't dwell in a high and lofty place in this world. He wasn't known for his intrinsic beauty and strength as far as the physical things are considered. And yet what men stumbled at by their physical sight, this man perceived without physical sight. He saw that this Jesus of Nazareth, is none less than that Messiah, the son of David. So when he hears Jesus of Nazareth, he hears, this is Jesus who is the Messiah. He's the one who has come according to the scripture's promises. Now, how is it that this is the case? Well, doubtlessly, the man had heard of Jesus of Nazareth. And you remember that there were prophecies recorded of the Messiah. Isaiah is full of them, as well as the rest of the Scriptures having different indications of what the Messiah would do. Because there would be false messiahs who would come. But the true Messiah would do such things as Christ records earlier in Luke's Gospel when He takes the scroll of Isaiah, opens to the place where it says, "...the Spirit of the Lord is upon Me. God has anointed Me." And what is he going to record? Well, that he's come to give sight to the blind, to make the lame walk, to declare, you know, uh, release to the captives, all these different things that he would do. And he rolls up the scroll, hands it back, and says, Today, this scripture is fulfilled in your presence. What's he saying? I am the Messiah. And he had already had a backlog. Of various miracles, all of which are signs pointing to him saying, Look and see, this is the one who fits all of the descriptions of the prophecies. This is that Christ. This is that Savior. He's been marked out by these clear signs of what he should do. And so, here this man who had heard of these things now has who he knows to be the Messiah before him. He sees that he is that truly anointed king. Not as the world sees, because you would have seen no crown upon his head. You would have seen no beauty upon his face. You would have seen nothing about his followers in the multitude, which would have exuded the pomp of royalty. But he had clearer signs that were pointing out the reality of his person, that he was the Messiah, all of which these things that recorded in the scriptures demonstrate. Now, this is helpful for us for a number of reasons. Sometimes you and I think to ourselves, well, if I saw these miracles done in my life or in others, then I would believe. You say, after all, I mean, this man's about to receive a miracle, right? That's true. But let's put it before he comes with this request. He's heard of the record and he believes. Do you see? He's heard of Jesus of Nazareth and he's believing. He's not sitting there saying, well, I'll believe if you do this. I'll believe you are the Christ if you do these things. He's heard the record of what Christ has done. And he says, that's sufficient for me to know who this is. And so though time, of course, has passed and we're not in the same context and culture, yet the same essence of things as before us, we have the record of what Christ has done. This is why Paul labors this point in various epistles of the eyewitness accounts And in his day, he could say, go ask those who saw these things. Corinth, you haven't seen it, but others have seen it. I am an eyewitness to these things. What's the point? Faith, can we say it this way? Sees before seeing. Faith trusts, in other words, the record regarding Christ before it receives any evidence of the same. What do we mean by that? Well, not that faith is blind, but rather faith sees according to the record of God's word. Think of Romans, you have chapter 9, 10, and 11, from God's sovereignty to the preaching of the gospel freely and the gathering in of Jew and Gentile and so on. But there in Romans 10, you have this testimony faith cometh by hearing, hearing the word of what? Of God. And that's what this man had to rest upon. And though he couldn't physically see those things, yet he knew the record of what Christ had done. And so he sees what others didn't see. And he saw that this Jesus of Nazareth, who had no halo upon his head, who had nothing special in his carriage that men would have said, look at the dignity of the Son of God, but was a man like in all ways that we are men, sin accepted. And yet he discerned by the gift of faith who he was. He is the Messiah. He is the Savior. Brethren, this is what faith does fundamentally. It perceives Jesus Christ it is in its maturity expressed in Psalm 45. Now, we cannot say to our shame that our faith is always at its maturity. But notice in Psalm 45, verse 1, my heart is inditing a good matter. It's boiling over with what? I speak the things which I have made touching the king. My tongue is the pen of a ready writer. Thou... O king, art fairer than the children of men. That's faith in its maturity. It sees and perceives the beauty of Christ. It perceives the transcendent glory of his person. It's what in Song of Solomon, when the, Uh, Bride is asked, What is thy beloved more than any other beloved? And going through this list of excellencies, she comes to the grand sum of it all. Yea, he is altogether lovely. This is my beloved, and this is my friend. Faith perceives all of that. And brethren, the bride in Song of Solomon 5 is in the midst of trial and affliction. She's struggling with many things, but her faith is perceiving the excellency of Jesus Christ. This helps us understand various diversions of our present day when some in pulpits and books and videos will actually lure us away from what is known as the object of faith, that which faith beholds. And so there are some who teach us or would teach us that faith is really about your life. Believe that you have, you'll get it. Faith is about making your life better. Faith is about improving your well-being. Faith is about enriching your bank account. Faith is about all these other things. And they may even appeal to this chapter, which we'll see is faulty on many accounts. But notice, fundamentally, faith is fixed upon the person of Jesus Christ. And so, may I ask you for a moment before passing on, is this descriptive of you? Do you perceive Jesus Christ for who he is? You see, many people will say things like, well, you know, I go to church, I get it, I'm a church goer, I believe that this is true about Jesus, and so on. No, that's fine. But notice the discerning of who Jesus is leads to the exercise of faith. Jesus, thou son of David, Have mercy on me. And so if it is so that you and I discern who Jesus is, it will lead us to, as it were, launch our hope upon him. There's none greater than he is. There's none better than he is. There's none more merciful than he is. Why is it that we look elsewhere for that which only Christ can supply? Oh, it's not wrong, of course, for a child to look to his parent or a wife to her husband, And other such relationships. But so often in our difficulties, we make of these which are secondary supports, however good, however beneficial, and make them out to be as if they're our Savior. People do it of pastors. Pastors do it of the congregation. And we look for our hope in these places. And surely we have a reason to seek for encouragement to some extent. But brethren, the arm of flesh is the arm of flesh. A husband, however wise and good and powerful, is still but a man. A congregation, however faithful and mature, is still but a congregation of people. A pastor, however gifted and able, is still but a man. But here, this blind man discerns in Jesus one who is more than a man. And from that, he launches his hope upon him. Why? Because he sees who Jesus is is. Secondly, notice that faith sees through misery. We don't know how long this man was by the wayside begging, but it seems that it was a common affair, at least for some duration. But whatever the case, there he is. He's begging. Our culture thinks in terms of if God is true, I want to be a beggar. I want to be poor. I want to have my affliction. I want to have my trial. But this man, in his affliction, hears of Jesus Christ and doesn't first test him, saying, Well, if you're the Christ, then prove it by getting me out of my begging. Instead, in his temporal misery of begging, which, by the way, is caused. By his temporal misery of blindness, he's still seeing through it. So think of this for a moment. How many times have we not only heard, but functioned in our own minds in a way that thinks, well, I'll believe God when he starts doing better things for me. I'll trust God when he gets his act together and starts caring for me in the ways that I should have care expressed. This man doesn't have any of that. We're not saying he's a perfect man, but rather his faith is clear. And though he has real pains, real difficulty, what is it like? How could we know to be in his shoes by the wayside begging in our trials and afflictions? Well, perhaps someone says, I don't know that, but I know plenty of other temporal miseries. And indeed, everyone in this world, every son of Adam, will know something of the miseries of this life. Why? Because when sin entered in by Adam, we sinned in him and fell with him into what? Into an state of sin and misery. Every one of us is touched by misery. Every one of us has something of affliction and pain. And every one of us in our at best weakness of faith and many times strength of sinful sight, complain against God that if you're true, well, this will be changed. But notice that's not the voice of this man. He doesn't say, if you're the son of David, but he launches unto Jesus, son of David, have mercy on me. So he's not the voice of the crowd who would be onlookers to the cross and say, if he's the Son of God, let him come down from the cross, and then we'll believe. Rather, in his pain, in his misery, and in the humiliation of Christ before him, yet he sees through it and still trusts in him. But notice his misery is strengthened for a season because as he cries out, and oh, what energy is expressed. In that word, verse 38, cried. He didn't say, hey, you know, if you think about it, would you come? But his voice is lifted up. As the lifting up of his affections and earnestness, he cries out. And what's the response? They which went before rebuked him that he should hold his peace. Be quiet. Why would you trouble our master? Why would you bother him? Look at yourself. You're here by the wayside begging. He's got more important things to do. Like, I don't understand it, but we're on our way to Jerusalem and he's supposed to do something big there. So don't hinder his advance. But notice such a discouragement spiritually does not discourage him ultimately. Because when it is he receives the rebuke of Christ's disciples, it says he cried so much the more. Brethren, let's ask ourselves for a moment is that what happens when we're discouraged? Or are we ready to relent? We cry out and we come with an obstacle that says, You're not getting what you're asking for. And we say, Well, you know, I asked. And so I guess it's not going to happen. Well, this man saw who Christ is. And by that, all that is in Christ, as far as mercies and blessings and compassion. And instead of stopping at the obstacle, by the way, not the first obstacle, who knows how long he was blind, who knows how long he was begging. But now in this strengthened obstacle, wherein he feels Those most intimate to Christ, those who are disciples of Christ, are saying, back off. Quiet down. He cries out, so much the more. Doesn't change his petition. He, with earnestness, increases his petition. And so, the difficulty increases. What happens in faith? Faith increases with the difficulty. Brethren, you know this by experience in the Lord's grace. Those of you who have been brought through trials, you have your wavering moments. But as you reflect back, especially in coming out of a trial, you can look back and say, as the Lord increased the affliction, He also increased my prayers. Right? Now, we can't say that every time because there are times where our faith is weak and we're overcome, but the Lord upholds us even then. But think of this. When is it that you pray the most earnestly? Is it not when you feel your misery the most? Is it not when it comes with heaviness and grips your soul? And setback comes up and your soul is, as it were, cornered. And you realize, if a believer, that there's no way, there's no way out of this, but by God's mercy. Well, here's what the man feels. The spiritual discouragement comes by, his, by Christ's disciples, but he cries out all the more. He's seeing through it. No, no. I know who Jesus is. You may know him to some extent, but you're misrepresenting him. I know who he is. I know what his record testifies regarding him. Jesus, thou son of David, have mercy on me. Notice Christ stands, commands him to be brought unto him. Sometimes we think, if I could just have a moment with Christ, all would be well. And yet, there's something solemn that happens when we realize I'm in the presence of the Lord Jesus Christ. And it can actually have this weakening effect upon us. You can see this perhaps in a different context. We think in terms negatively, Well, if I see that person, I'll tell them what's for. And then come around the corner, there's the person. And we start to say, well, you know, I was overbold, And I'll sort of relent. Do you have a problem? No, you know, I was just thinking. And we reduce it and relinquish and sort of carry on our way. There's something similar that can happen when conscious of the presence of God. You see it in Isaiah. Isaiah sees the Lord high and lifted up. And the angels crying out holy 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 and Isaiah reflects who am i i am a condemned sinner woe is me i'm undone i'm a man of unclean lips i dwell among a people of unclean lips i've lost all boldness all hope because i've seen god in his glory but notice faith continues latched on upon christ christ asks him what wilt thou that I shall do unto thee. And he said, Lord, what a word, Lord, King, Master, God, that I may receive my sight. Notice, it sees through the misery, not just to potential mercy, but to the embracing and the experience of mercy, So Jesus says, receive thy sight, thy faith hath saved thee, and immediately he received his sight. Now let's note here that faith receives. It's a blessed thing that faith founded upon God's word, and this is important. Faith is not the outlandish and lavish request like we saw in Matthew 20 of Zebedee's children's mother coming and saying, this is what I want. I want one son to be on your right hand and the other son to be on your left hand. I want my name prominently displayed in the glory of heaven so that when men see you in your exalted glory, the next thing they see is my sons on one side and the other. Someone says, well, that's faith because it's coming boldly to Christ for something large and big. But brethren, that's not faith, that's presumption. We don't mean to speak as if James and John were unbelievers. We don't mean that, the scriptures don't mean that, or their mother was an unbeliever, but they were misunderstanding and they were misconstruing what faith does. Faith isn't just, as some say, asking for big things. Faith is asking for things wherein there's a warrant from God to ask. Faith rests upon the revealed word of God. It doesn't make up things, but rather it rests upon the word of God. And someone says, well, does this mean that we should go to God with full confidence that if I'm blind, that God will heal me and give me sight? And the answer is no. Because what the man is doing here is in the historical context, he knows this son of David, the Messiah, has signs to display his glory. At this time, this is a promise to those who are around him. This doesn't mean, by the way, that we don't ask God for healing. We see that in James, that if one is sick, we call for the elders and so on. Prayer of faith will heal. But what it's saying is this faith regarding miraculous signs and wonders was particularly for a season. God can and does heal today, but he doesn't do so in the same Manner, He can miraculously, without the use of means, provide this. But this particular exercise of faith and this particular display of Christ was bound up for the display of His person. As He had said, I am the Messiah. I've come to give sight to the blind, among other things. And so this man, who was blind and knew who Christ was, comes with the word of God, countenancing and supporting his petition and says, I ask you to give me sight. What's the point? Faith rests upon the word of Christ and expects the word of Christ to be fulfilled. And someone says, time out. That seems the height of presumption. After all, he's the Lord. Okay, well, it would be height of presumption if the Lord hadn't given the word. It's the height of arrogance and unbelief to be faced with the word of God and say, I'm not going to ask it. I'm not going to believe that God will provide it. I think that's too much for me to ask if God has provided in his word a promise. I'm not worthy of it. I don't deserve God to do these things. Of course, the fulfillment of the promise has nothing to do with your being worthy of it. It has everything to do with God who has promised being faithful so this man asks, seeing through his misery, his discouragements, and he receives sight. This, of course, tells us of Christ. Now here, of course, it's focused upon his uh, powerful work. In Matthew 20, it's joined with his compassion. He had compassion on the man and he heals. Lord, that I may receive my sight. And Jesus said unto him, receive thy sight, thy faith. Hath saved thee. Brethren, here's the point for us. Your faith is still to rest upon the word of Christ, confident that he who has promised is faithful to perform all that he's promised. So, what's our work? Our work is to discern what he's promised. And of course, people confuse this and so on today. There's a need to search the scriptures diligently to find promises and to ask, as it were, is this a promise that is relevant to me? And when that's the case, what's happened is the Lord has cleared a foundation for our hope saying, this is your promise to rest upon. So, you know, some people that are loosely grounded will say, well, Abraham, you know, was promised that. His son should be the line of promise. And so when God said to Abraham, go and sacrifice your son, he did so confident that either God would intervene or raise up his son from the dead. Well, therefore, I have the ability to trust God by sacrificing my son. We say, wait, time out. Not at all. Why? Well, it's clear to us that promise was peculiar for Abraham. So if we go around and say, well, God's a promising God and I'm going to sacrifice my son. We're guilty of murder. And we have been fools for going about misapplying a promise. But brethren, the other sin is grievous as well. When a promise is given to us and instead of resting upon, pleading and seeking God to fulfill the promise, we set it aside and say, well maybe for another. Remember what James says, ye have not, for ye ask not. Christ tells us in various ways, ask and it shall be given. Seek and ye shall find. Knock and it shall be opened unto you. And then to encourage us, he tells us, you're wicked fathers. And if you being evil know how to give to your children good gifts, how much more your father in heaven Is he willing to give the spirit? Think of that statement. The spirit to all who ask him. All of the spiritual blessings are held forth to God's people. And he's saying, ask. And we say, well, I have asked. But I don't get. I'm not growing in assurance. I'm not growing in holiness. I'm not growing in love. I'm not growing in peace and all these different things. And we say, well, let's look again at this man. He encountered grief multiplied, intensified, strengthened, but he didn't stop asking. He continued until what? Until he received. And so the psalmist says, you know, we lift our eyes as a maiden to her mistress hand. So do our eyes attend upon the Lord till when? Till I'm exhausted and I'm done asking. No, so well, it's pretty clear that what he's promised is not coming my way. No, the statement is, till he sends mercy to us. That's what this man is doing. That's what faith does. But brother, notice lastly, faith sees true life. The man displays that he's not just possessing what is known as the faith of miracles, there were what we can call unbelievers in the sense of conversion, who yet had the faith of miracles either to perform or to receive the miraculous thing. So Judas Iscariot, for instance, was an unbeliever, son of perdition, but he had a faith of miracles whereby he was enabled to perform <laughs> miracles. There were other accounts of men who, who were healed and other such things, but didn't follow the Lord. They turned aside. But notice this man is not just exercising the faith of miracles. I know Christ, you can heal my sight. But he's looking more fully. Thy faith has saved thee. Immediately he received his sight and notice, followed him, glorifying God. Faith, in other words, is not ultimately after the temporal mercy or the relief of temporal affliction. We certainly come to God for those things, and we ask God for mercy in that. But faith, again, because it perceives who Christ is, is not content without Christ, wants Christ. Now, across the world, there are even good churches and preachers and otherwise sound teaching that, however, is contenting men with just making their lives well. So, for instance, you know, a drunk then gets his life in order and now he's content. A broken marriage is healed and now they're content. A poverty-stricken person is brought out of poverty, debts paid off, and now they're content. But notice this man is not content with his sight. He's not content with his temporal mercy answered. He's content only in following and glorifying God. It's a scary thing to think, if God gave me all of my temporal desires, what would happen to me? Would my zeal for Christ increase or would my zeal for self increase? If God gave me what I asked, Here I've got this physical problem, heal me. Here I've got this relational problem, would you fix it? Here I've got this financial problem, would you cause it to go away? I've got this vocational problem, would you get my manager out of my way and let me have the way that I want? All these things are making us pray. What happens if he gave it to you? Well, this man receives sight, and with sight now, Receives the means of working and laboring. Never to have to beg another day in his life. All of these things. But what is it he does? He becomes a disciple. He followed Christ and glorifies God. See, there is the evidence of true faith. So brethren, here is what faith is taken up with. It's taken up with the person of Christ. Ultimately, what faith desires is Christ. So brethren and friends, is this true of you? You have different promises given and you say, yep, you know, I'm struggling here and I see that promise that would help this and that and so on. Well, all of us can look back and say, to some extent or another, the Lord's brought me through things. Ask yourself for a moment, and the Lord's showing you mercy. Has it strengthened your ardent desire for him? Or is it simply making you focus more upon yourself? Go back for a moment to Matthew 20. Think of uh, Zebedee's wife and Zebedee's children, John and James. What would have happened had Jesus said, you got it? Most likely what would happen is they would have been puffed up. You know know what's going to happen to us? We're going to be at the right hand and the left hand of Christ. They would have had this prominence. And so you see why in Matthew 20, Christ goes on to speak of those who would be great. Let them be your minister, your servant. He's re-instructing the people. You've misunderstood. You think I've come to make you personally great on your own so that other men would praise you and you'd be this royal personage to receive honor of men. That's not my kingdom. I, the king, have come to serve and give my life as a ransom for many. So Christ withholds that provision. If he had given it, without question, they would have been exalted in themselves, pride would have been fed, and they, as balloons, would have been overinflated unto the point of bursting. Well, brethren, what mercies you've received, have they inflated your ego or have they humbled you and increased rather your heart and love to Christ? That's the mark of true faith. True faith doesn't swerve from Christ. It holds on to Christ. And as it receives mercy, it's receiving strength to hold on to Him more. Think of it this way. When a vine... Is giving nourishment to its branches, the fruit doesn't wither. It nourishes and gets stronger, and the branches stronger, and you can see the vine gets thicker and the branches thicker, and all of these things. Everything's strengthening and ripening. And the same is true spiritually, that when faith has laid hold of Christ by God's grace, it doesn't inflate us. On our own, it strengthens our grip of Christ. I want more of Christ. Whom have I in heaven but thee? And in earth, whom do I desire beside thee? This is the mark of faith. Is it your mark? Is it what you have? Do you know that you have Christ? And as you have Christ, does it strengthen within you? That which this man received, an earnest desire now to follow Christ and glorify God. And it ripples out all the people when they saw it gave praise to God as well. Brethren, it tells us much of the compassion of Christ, again governed by his word, how eagerly we ought to draw near with our miseries. And instead of being discouraged with the no's and the hindrances and obstacles If faith is latched upon, not our circumstances, but upon the person and word of Christ, then when these circumstances are big and heavy and difficult, faith has that which it looks through and sees still Christ and says, there is my hope. So brethren, perhaps it is that you face a trial today. What is your need? Well, see that it's ultimately not that your trial is removed. It's not wrong to want your trial to be removed, of course. That's what the man was seeking in many ways. But it's fundamentally necessary that you're seeking the ultimate thing, to know Christ, to enjoy His mercy, to the end that you might follow Christ all the more. Well, may God so bless by His grace that these things would be made real in our own lives. Would you stand with me?